you have your Bible, I invite you to find your place in Exodus chapter 3. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 3 to a passage that we've kept coming back to over the last several weeks in our series of studies through the book of Exodus. We've been uh, taking really a prolonged look at the life of Moses from these first few chapters of Exodus. And you know that Moses was the instrument that God chose to use in order to deliver the Israelites out of their Egyptian bondage. And Moses is the towering figure of the Old Testament, the man of God through whom God gave his law uh, to his people. And yet before that will happen, we've seen how Moses' life really is molded and shaped by God uh, through the experiences and the choices that Moses makes in life. I was reading something from uh, Dr. Chuck Swindoll's little book, his biography on the life of Moses. But in uh, that book, he tells the story of how his youngest son would bring him one of his little shoes with the laces just all tied in a knot. Some of you, you, you had kids you can identify. I know we can. Uh, I personally can identify. I can't stand getting my shoelaces in a knot. I lose my patience real quick. Well, in the effort to try to untie his, his shoelaces, Dr. Swindoll said that his son would create a knot, but then he would pull as hard as he could on the strings, <laughs> thinking that somehow that was going to help, as if the harder he pulled on the strings, somehow that would break the knot. But only, you know, the only thing that it did was to make matters worse. And rather than bringing his knotted up mess to his father, he would apply the muscle until it ended in failure and he came to dad with tears. Dr. Swindoll said that it's appropriate to see this as a picture of oftentimes what we do in life. We get into such a tangled up mess and we refuse to admit that it's a self-made knot. And so often what we do, pride leads us to just pull harder and harder on the strings until finally it brings us to the point of failure when we finally surrender things over to our Heavenly Father. And so all of that brings us to this chapter in Exodus 3 where Moses is barefoot in the presence of God here at the burning bush. You might could even say that he is in a tangled, twisted knot of fear and failure having settled down into a place of obscurity far away from his former life in Egypt. And yet it's here that God will reveal to Moses his intentions to visit his people, to bring them up out of slavery, and he's going to use Moses as an instrument in that process. And so really the call of God on Moses' life is what we find here in Exodus chapter 3. And in verse 10, God says to Moses, I'm, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. I want you to go to Egypt, and I'm going to use you as an instrument, Moses, to bring my people up out of their bondage. Now the story picks up in verse number 11, so you can read with me, beginning in Exodus 3, verse number 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. 
And then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. And so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And we'll stop reading right there. I want to speak from this subject for just a few minutes this morning. Balking at the burning bush. Now you know what it means to balk. I'm not talking about the pitcher in baseball who commits an error, but to balk at something is to hesitate. So here in this passage of Scripture, God is clear in his calling that he places upon Moses' life. Moses learns that God has intentions to visit his people, to save his people, to rescue his people and bring them up out of Egypt and into the land of blessing. However, Moses is going to be the instrument that God uses in the process. And so the calling upon Moses' life is for him to leave his life there in the wilderness of Midian to go all the way back to Egypt and confront Pharaoh and so lead the people out of their bondage. And so upon learning that this is what God's intentions are, you would think, okay, well, does Moses say, okay, Lord, whatever you want, that's what I'm willing to do? Is that how he initially responds? It's not. Because Moses balks. Moses hesitates. Uh, Moses is fearful, and Moses begins coming up with excuses as to why he's the wrong man for the job. Now, really, there are three excuses that Moses will sort of bring up in protest to God, and and we'll get to all of those eventually. I'm only going to deal with one excuse this morning, but I want to tell you what all three of them are just so you can be prepared. All right, so the first excuse is seen in verse number 11. It's an excuse born out of Moses' insecurity. Moses is insecure in his calling, and and he says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Uh, Surely you've called the wrong man. 
Do you realize who it is that you're talking to, God? I don't have what it takes. And so that's the first excuse where Moses expresses insecurity. Now, the second excuse that Moses is going to bring up comes in chapter 4, verse 1, because really chapters 3 and 4 are a narrative where uh, Moses is there at the burning bush. God is doing most of the talking, revealing to Moses who he is, laying that divine call upon Moses' life. But the second excuse is this. Moses answered, Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. So here his excuse is the impossibility of his success. He's saying, God, you've called me to an impossible task. There's absolutely no way that these people are going to take me seriously. They're not going to listen to me, which, by the way, that is in direct contrast to what God already has said. Evidently, Moses had wax in his ears because in verse 18 of chapter 3, God told Moses, they will listen to your voice. So here, his excuse really is, is a form of unbelief. Now, the third excuse that Moses brings up comes down in, uh, in verse 10 of chapter 4. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And so here, Moses, his excuse is inadequacy as far as his giftings are concerned. All right, so three excuses, insecurity in his calling, the impossibility of his success, and now the inadequacy of his gifting. Now, that was true of Moses, but I'm convinced that these are some of the same excuses that we still offer God for why we can't do something that he calls us to do. Oftentimes, we, we know what God commands and expects out of us, and rather than responding with immediate obedience and submissive faith, we come up with every excuse in the world. And those excuses are born out of our insecurities. They're born out of our sense of an impossibility ta impossible task that we've been called to, which, by the way, Moses is going to learn that God specializes in making possible the impossible. Because with God, all things are possible. And then oftentimes we use our own personal inadequacy and lack of giftings and abilities uh, as an excuse. But all of that really is a mask for our own unbelief deep down when it gets to the real issue. So dealing with these excuses then one by one, number one, the first excuse Moses offers has to do with his own personal insecurities. Moses expresses an insecurity in his calling. God calls God commands him to go, but Moses says to God, who am I that I should go? Now, you need to keep in mind that God's call of Moses here was not a proposal, but a commission. And there's a difference between a proposal and a commission. This is something that's non-negotiable. Uh, God is not offering a suggestion to Moses. God's not showing up here at the burning bush just to test the waters to see whether or not Moses is willing to get the job done. No, God is, is, is divinely calling Moses, commissioning Moses, commanding Moses to leave his life there in Midian and to go back to Egypt and lead the people of God out of Egypt. So it's a declaration of God's intent. Moses is under divine summons here. And any resistance on his part ultimately is disobedience. 
God has a plan for his life, and Moses must submit to that plan. And that's what the call of God demands from all of us, men and women. But rather than responding with immediate obedience, Moses begins making excuses. He says, hold up just a minute, God. Uh, Who am I that I should go to the children of Israel? I mean, don't you know that I'm a wanted man in Egypt? Don't you realize the spectacular failure that I was 40 years ago where I killed the Egyptian, buried his body in the sand, was rejected by my own Israelite countrymen, and then the Egyptians themselves put a hit out on me? I can't go back to Egypt. I've spent all of my life running from Egypt, and here you're telling me to run to Egypt. And so Moses has no problem coming up with these excuses, but all of his excuses are born out of fear and insecurity. Moses says, I'm not special enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not capable enough. I'm not strong enough. And so it's an astonishing thing to him to hear that God wanted to send him to Egypt. And he asked this question, who am I? Now, there's a sense in which that's a good question because it reveals a profound sense of humility in Moses' life. Moses has been brought to a place of total dependence at this point in his life. All that he could put his confidence in, his former life in Egypt, all of that has been stripped away from him. So there's a sense in which Moses is expressing a humility that's required to serve God. However, there is also a sense in which Moses is really expressing fear and insecurity. And his question shows us where his focus is. Because rather than focusing on the God who's calling him to this task, Moses begins by focusing on himself. His eyes are on himself. He recognizes the fact that he's a man of limitation. He's a man of weakness. He's wholly inadequate for the task. He can't get the job done. But what Moses needs to do is to get his eyes off of himself and get his eyes upon the one who's called him to begin with. You know, we never know who we are until we first of all know who God is. God's going to reveal himself to Moses in a powerful way. And it's then and only then that Moses will learn who he is as a man who's dependent upon the grace and the mercy and the power of God. We see something similar in the prophet Isaiah's life. You remember Isaiah after he sees the vision of God high and lifted up. And the angels of God were declaring him to be the thrice holy God that he is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. You know what Isaiah's reaction was to seeing God in glory and majesty? Here's what he says. He says, woe is me, for I am undone, and I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The idea is, for the first time in his life, Isaiah sees God for who he is, while at the same time, he sees himself for who he is. And Moses is going to have a similar experience here in Exodus chapter 3. Now, folks, listen, if we only uh, look at ourselves in comparison to people around us, very soon, it'll, it'll, it'll produce within us one of two attitudes. On one hand, it could produce within us an inflated view of self to where we think, you know what? I'm not as bad as he or she is. I'm better than they are. 
And that fosters a profound sense of pride in a person's life, comparing yourself by someone else. On the other hand, it could also produce within us a sense of inferiority to where we say, I'm not as good as he is. I'm not as good as she is. And then that then becomes a jealous animosity that's fed and fostered in our hearts toward one another. But you see, when we lift our eyes toward heaven and we get a glimpse of God, who he is in his glory, we become undone and we tremble and we're keenly aware that we are but dust. And so Moses is going to have an encounter with a holy God. And the closer that he gets, the more afraid that Moses becomes. And he hears the voice of God sending him on a task, sending him on a mission. And so Moses' fear then quickly turns to doubt. And he asks the question, who am I? But you see, as far as the task was concerned, that's the wrong question to ask because it will not be a matter of who Moses is, but instead it's a matter of who God is. It's not a matter of who Moses is. The circumstance that you face, the calling that's laid upon your life, it's not a matter of who you are, but my friend, it is always a matter of who God is. And that's true of absolutely everything that we face in life. So to combat this insecurity in his calling, this excuse that Moses is making before God, Moses needs to know at least three important things about God. By the way, we need to know these same three things. Number one, Moses needed to be confident in the presence of God. If he's going to combat that sense of insecurity, he needs to be confident, not in himself, not in his own ability, no, he needs to place his confidence in the presence of God. Because look at what God says to Moses in verse number 12. He says to Moses, that's okay. You've got what it takes, old boy. I believe in you. Is that what it says? It's not what my Bible says. <laughs> no, my Bible says this. God says to Moses, but I will be with you. Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? I'm nobody. God says, yeah, that's right. You are nobody. But let me tell you about the great somebody who's going to be with you, who's going to accompany you, who's going to strengthen you. It's God's presence with Moses that matters. God says, I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you. I've sent you. That when you've brought the people up out of Egypt, you will serve God right here on this mountain. In other words, the time is going to come after it's all said and done, Moses, you're going to be bringing the people right back to this very spot upon which you stand. And then you're going to realize that I'm with you every step of the way. And so God is telling Moses that he's, he's a part of something that ultimately is successful no matter the bumps along the way. No matter the obstacles and the hurdles and the protest and the opposition that he's going to experience. What will make all the difference is the fact that God's presence is with Moses. And so Moses is going to go to Egypt, not in the strength of himself, not full of himself. He's going to go in the strength of another. God says, don't worry about who you are because I am with you. Now, folks, you realize that God's divine calling upon your life, it always comes with the promise of his presence in you, with you, for you. 
As a child of God, there is absolutely no circumstance whatsoever that God is going to leave you in or abandon you to. He has promised, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And some of you need to be encouraged by that because you find yourself in the midst of some difficult circumstance. And you're tempted to wonder whether or not you're all alone. What you need to be encouraged by is the fact that as a believer in Jesus Christ, God says, I am with you. Moses could be confident in the presence of Almighty God. And by the way, aren't you grateful that we're a part of a successful mission that cannot fail? God's not up in heaven wringing his hands wondering whether or not the Great Commission is going to succeed, whether or not the church is going to succeed. Even before he ascended to heaven, Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we can be confident in the presence of God, which, by the way, Jesus promised his own special presence with his disciples before he ascended to heaven, before he gave the great commission. He said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. In light of that authority, here's what I want you to do. Go make disciples. Baptize those who believe. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And then Jesus said, surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, he's with you in the valleys of life, on the mountaintops of life, uh, in the calling that he's placed upon your life. He's with you even when you don't necessarily feel like that's true. And so Moses could be absolutely confident in the presence of God. Now, there's a second thing that he needs to know to combat this insecurity in his calling, and it's this. Moses needs to be convinced of the person of God. Comforted and confident in the presence of God, but he needs to be absolutely convinced of the person of God. You'll notice that he asks a second question. Verse 13, he says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what's his name, what shall I say to them? So Moses wants to know who God is. What's your name? Now you need to know that in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, a person's name meant far more than just what they were designated by. Because a name in Scripture often reveals character. It it tells us something about someone's story. So in effect, Moses is asking God, Tell me your name. Tell me who you are. Tell me what you're like. Reveal to me your nature and your person. And so how does God answer Moses? He gives him this answer, I am who I am. You tell the people that I am has sent you. And he reveals to Moses his covenant name. It's the name Yahweh or Jehovah. Now, folks, you know that there's a very real difference in knowing that God is versus knowing who God is. The Apostle Paul makes the point in Romans chapter 1 that every person in the world knows that God is. There's not a person alive on this planet that in their conscience does not know that God is. Now, they may be vehement in their denials that God is, but the very fact that they're so vehement in their denials that God is is evidence that God is. Everybody knows that God is. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the entire world is without excuse. All of humanity is without excuse because God has so revealed himself 
in creation that the world is without excuse. Everybody knows that God is. By the way, I think we got a really good illustration of this if you were watching Monday Night Football this past week. If you know what happened this past Monday night, DeMar Hamlin, a safety for the Buffalo Bills, after a tackle, he, he uh, collapsed on the field, went into cardiac arrest, and it was a scary, scary moment on national television. And I was watching that, and I was just baffled by the fact the sportscasters, the analysts, the commentators, they didn't know what in the world to do or what to say. There was a hush that fell upon the thousands and thousands of people who were there in the stadium. And I watched as, as, as players from both teams came out on the field, and they were all on their knees praying as the ambulance took DeMar Hamlin away. In fact, one ESPN analyst even prayed over the air on national television. Amen. Coaches and players were in tears, embracing grown men on their knees. And what I was amazed by was just the spontaneous response that happened on a nationwide platform and stage, and not a soul could stop it. This immediate, spontaneous response to pray for this man whose life is hanging in the balance. You know, there was no Freedom From Religion Foundation there to protest that moment. There was absolutely nobody screaming for separation of church and state in that moment. No one was worried about somebody else being offended that someone else was kneeling to pray in that moment. And by the way, last night, I don't know if you saw it last night, but the game that was on last night between the Texans and the Jaguars, both teams on the 50-yard line before the game, everybody kneeling and praying. And somewhere, Tim Tebow was somewhere smiling, I guarantee you. Because the seriousness of the situation demanded nothing less than humanity bowing helplessly before deity that it knows it owes its existence to. So yeah, everyone everywhere knows that God exists. But you see, the issue is not everyone knows who God is. Everyone knows that God is, but not everyone knows who God is. And Moses comes to know who God is here in Exodus chapter 3. And the most important thing any person needs to know in his or her life, you need to know who God is. Because an accurate understanding of yourself, an accurate understanding of your life in the world, and most important of all, your eternal destiny all hang in the balance, dependent upon whether or not you know who God is. And so Moses comes to know God. God reveals himself to Moses and says, Moses, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. In Hebrew, this is the name of God. It consists of just four consonants in the Hebrew language, and it forms what's known as the tetragrammaton, which simply means the four letters. This is the name for God, Yahweh or Jehovah, as it's been translated. So whenever you're reading your Bible and you come across, uh, you come across the word Lord or God, but you notice that it's in all capital letters, you know that this is a reverential way of translating 
the covenant name of God in our English translation. It's the most common name for God that's used throughout Scripture. It's used some 6,519 times. Now, let me tell you what it means. Here's what Moses comes to learn when God tells him, I am that I am. Moses learns that he is the personal God. That is, he's not some impersonal force. He's not some philosophical idea. When Moses asks who he is, God doesn't respond by saying, it is what it is. No, he says, I am who I am. He's a God who sees, a God who hears, a God who knows, a God who speaks, a God who relates to those creatures that he's made in his own image. Now, that's important that you know that because we don't live in some impersonal universe as the many today would have you believe. Some would say, well, the universe is all that there is, and we're just the random accident, the process, the result of some random process that happened by chance, and we owe our existence to some impersonal force. And there's a really good Hebrew word to describe that thought. Hogwash. That's the word. It's not true. No, there is a personal God who's revealed himself, and Moses learns that God is personal. And then Moses learns that he is the self-existent God. The fact that he is I am means that there's nothing outside of him that contributes to his existence. And that's not true of us. We exist because we were created. We had a mother and father who both contributed, what, 23 pairs of XY chromosomes? or something like that. If there was no them, there would be no you. And we're not just dependent upon our parents for our existence, but we're, we're dependent upon external factors like, like food and water and oxygen. Take away our oxygen, how long do you think we would live? We wouldn't live very long because we're dependent upon oxygen. We're dependent upon food and water. But you see, when Moses asks God, tell me your name, God says, I am that I am. In other words, God says, I am the, truly the only independent being in the universe who exists outside time but is manifesting himself inside time, who's working, who's active, who's upholding all things by his own sovereign word of power. So he's the personal God. He's the self-existent God. Moses learns that he's the eternal God. This name of God suggests that he is eternal. He always has been. He is now. And there will never be a time when he will not be. God says, I am and if that's not enough, Moses then learns that God is inexhaustible. The fact that he is the I am means that he's inexhaustible. He's telling Moses that he's here and he doesn't need anything. And that's important for Moses to understand. Because when God calls, Moses responds by saying, I am not. Yet what Moses was or was not didn't matter because God says to Moses, I am it means God is saying this, whatever circumstance may arise in Egypt, whatever challenge you may face in Egypt, 
whatever the deal is, whatever obstacle, whatever opposition, whatever fear, whatever thought enters your mind, I will be there, and God says, I will always be more than sufficient for you. Our needs and our weaknesses and our limitations, none of this ever catches God by surprise or will ever be to such a degree that he isn't enough. And then you add to this the fact Moses learns that God is the unchanging God. To say that he is I am, I am that I am, God is saying that he is always the same. He never changes. Theologians refer to this as the doctrine of God's immutability. To say that God is immutable means to be without change. You know what mutate means? To mutate means to change in form and substance. So to say that God is immutable is to say that he does not mutate. He does not change. The God that you worshiped yesterday, he's the same God that you're calling upon and worshiping today. And should you be blessed to be a part of another day, God will still be the same God tomorrow. And you can take that to the bank. God says, I will not change. James says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't change. Now, that's not true of finite creatures like us. We're subject to time. We're subject to change. Time is taking its toll out on our bodies and on our minds. I remember when I was little, my papa would say something like this. I would ask him, I'd say, Papa, where are you going? And he'd say, I'm going to Wrinkles. And I just would think, man, I want to go to Wrinkles too. Where is this magical place that my Papa is going? And I'd say, Papa, can I go with you to Wrinkles? And he'd say, you just wait long enough. You'll get there. I promise you. <laughs> and it didn't dawn on me until I was 39 what my Papa meant. I was like, man, that's what he meant. Folks, we're all going to wrinkles because time is taking its toll out on our bodies. Some of you can say, you know, I'm not as strong physically as I used to be. I'm not as sharp mentally as I used to be. And some of you this year, you've walked through a difficult valley with the loss of someone you love, maybe a mother or a father, that you watched get older and more frail and you wept by their bedside when you sensed that their memory was not quite what it used to be. But aren't you glad that we're not just the result of some random process in the universe, but that you know that there's an unchanging, constant God in whom we trust? And time takes its toll out on us because of the curse and the fall of man. But you see, Jesus says, I'm making all things new. You place your faith and your trust in him. Listen, I know that my Redeemer lives. And when I say I'm not, God reminds me, and he says, no, I am. And that's what you need to know. So Moses needs to know all of this before he will go to Egypt and be useful in the hands of God. He needs to know who God is. He needs to know that God is with him. One last thing, and I'll leave with this. The third thing that we need to know to be able to combat insecurity is this. We've got to be compelled by the promise of God. Confidence in the presence of God. Convinced of the person of God. But folks, we've got to be compelled by the promise of God. 
Verse 15, God tells Moses to relay the message to the Israelites that he is the Lord, he is the I am, he's the God of their fathers and the patriarchs. This is how he's to be remembered throughout all generations. God tells Moses to call all of the elders and all of the people together once he gets there and say, the Lord, now listen to this, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to me. And so he's intentionally reminding his people of his covenant faithfulness. That throughout the generations, God has been faithful to his promise. Israel's going to need to know that because they've been in Egypt for some 400 long years. But just because it was a long time doesn't mean that God ever forgot his promise. No, you look at verse 17. God says, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. I promise that I'm going to bring you out of the land of bondage, and I'm going to bring you into the land of blessing. And that's the same thing that Jesus Christ says to every person who places their faith and trust in him. Jesus says, I, I will bring you out of your bondage spiritually, and I will bring you into a land of blessing. And if you're in Jesus Christ, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. You're not without. You feel insecure, and you feel your own inadequacy and your own weakness for whatever circumstance you're currently facing, whatever call that God's placed upon your life. Be encouraged by the fact that God says, I am that I am. Oh, be convinced of his presence in your life. Be confident in the person of God. Be compelled by the promise, the promise that we have. It's this facet of God's character that the hymn writer magnifies whenever he wrote these words. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. There's no greater security than that. Let's stand for prayer this morning. We've got so much more that we could say. We've got to stop. Do you feel the weight, perhaps, of your own insecurities? feeling as if you don't measure up in some way. But I gotta just tell you to get your eyes off of yourself. And get your eyes off of the person next to you, beside you, behind you, before you. And look to Christ. Look to Jesus. Don't you find it interesting that in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven I am statements which the Jews of his day would have clearly understood to be claims of deity. Where Jesus is claiming to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob incarnate. The I am wrapped up in humanity. Deity wrapped up in humanity. Perfect humanity. And Jesus says, if you're thirsty, you need to know that I am living water. If you're hungry, you need to know that I am bread from heaven. If you're fearful, 
weak, you need to know that I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for my sheep. If you're confused, you need to know that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus says, I am the door. If you want to know God, not just that he is, but if you want to know who he is, come to Christ because there's no other way. When you and I could never get to him, thank God that he came to us. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Oh, thank God for the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the security that every man, woman, boy, or girl in this room desperately needs. Do you know God through a relationship with his son? If not, then listen, why not right now confess your own insecurity and your own fear and your own weakness, your own sin. Realize that your sin has separated you from a holy God. But God has done everything necessary to redeem and rescue you. You say, I am not. I cannot. I could not. God says, I am. You turn to me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Oh, what a powerful reminder, Lord, that when we offer the excuse, born out of our own insecurities, Lord, it's evidence that we've taken our eyes off of you and we're focusing upon what we have or what we don't have. Lord, may we look away from self and look to Christ. And therein is our security. Therein is our hope. Therein is our salvation. So, Lord, whatever decisions need to be made this morning, in the hearts and lives of people, God, may they have freedom to respond today to your invitation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.